Let's uh, start with a word of prayer, if you'd join me. Father God, I ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word this morning. Father, that we would be attentive, that we would not sleep or become distracted or daydream. But Father, help us. Help us to, to make the most of this time where we gather together to certainly glorify you, to worship you, to honor you, but also to grow, to learn from you as we hear from your word and to become more of the people that you desire us to be. Father, may we be changed by your word. May this not just be a, a habit that we do and, and it has no impact on our lives, but may this be something that, that really changes us as we come in contact with the word of God on a regular basis. Bless your word this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is where we will be this morning. Looking at verses 12 through 26. If you weren't here last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11. There was a, I did a sermon called Reckless Devotion. I would encourage you to listen to it. You can gain access to that message online or via the table if you're on the table. It's a little bit easier to get it there. If you were here last week, I would encourage you to listen to it again. So this morning we are looking at something called, in this passage here I believe, a significant supper. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those blue Bibles. Page 850 will bring you to the 14th chapter of Mark, so the section that we are in this morning. We're calling this a significant supper, a significant Supper. By significant, I mean important, meaningful, or noteworthy. Important, meaningful, or noteworthy. And supper, I don't know how many of you use that word. How many of you use the word supper? One person. Two, three, okay. Supper is, I'm just going to use it to speak to dinner. It's the last meal of the evening. Okay, so supper would be dinner. Well, what makes a dinner noteworthy or meaningful to you? What makes it noteworthy or meaningful to you, a dinner? I mean, for me, having a nice, big, juicy steak immediately raises the level of significance in that meal. So sometimes it's the food, right? Sometimes it's the food that makes a dinner noteworthy or significant. Sometimes it's the company, right? It's the people that you're sharing the meal with makes that meal significant. Sometimes it's even the conversation that you have at that meal that makes it noteworthy or important or meaningful. I think of Thanksgiving dinner, right? At Thanksgiving dinner, you really have all three combined together. You have great food. You have hopefully good company, depending on your family. But there's at least a few in there that, are, that you desire to see and, and are excited about seeing and being with, typically. And then typically there's good conversation. Hopefully, in a Christian setting, you're giving thanks to God and you're, and you're meditating on and thinking about those things that you're thankful to God for. So all of those things, food, company, conversation, make, can make a supper or dinner very significant, meaningful, or noteworthy. Well, all three of those things are addressed or in the text before us in this supper. And all of them have significance and make this meal 
something that we need to pay attention to and learn about. That is the food, the company, those who are at the meal, and also the conversation that takes place during this meal. Mark 14, if you're there, just follow along with me as I read the text beginning in verse 12. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to consider five aspects. This is in your bulletin. Five aspects of the Lord's Supper so that we might better understand and appreciate this unique event. And I'm calling this the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're familiar with that term, but this meal, which was a Passover meal, ends up becoming what has been called by the Christian church the Lord's Supper. Also, we refer to it as communion. It is something that we celebrate here on the first Sunday of every month, this memorial meal, and it is based on what took place on this evening at this Passover meal. But it is typically now referred to as the Lord's Supper. So, We're going to look at five aspects of that supper, and hopefully we'll better understand it and appreciate it and be impacted by it. The five aspects are a sacred supper, a secret supper, a somber supper, a symbolic supper, and a subsequent supper. Okay, a lot of S's. That just helps me memorize it, and hopefully you too, and make it a little bit easier to understand it. So let me give you the context here, just by way of reminder. The day of the week was Thursday. It was Thursday. The following day, Friday morning, around 9 a.m., Jesus was crucified. So that's the setting. It's Thursday, and not many hours away, he will be nailed to a cross. Now, as I mentioned last week, Jerusalem at this time was crowded, packed with the Jews who lived outside of the city. Why? and that city being Jerusalem. Well, they had traveled there, as was their custom, once a year, to observe and celebrate the Passover and the associated 
feast, referred to here as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, the disciples refer to this celebration. We see it here in the text in verse 12, Mark 14:12. His disciples said to him, that is Christ, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? This brings us to the first point. This Passover is a sacred supper, a sacred supper. Now, the Passover celebration included a very special meal. It was an evening supper. It was held at night. This supper, by the way, was not something that the people just kind of threw together. Nor were the elements of the meal selected according to individual preferences, like what they wanted to eat. But rather, God had instructed the Jews in the details of this celebration. And you can find those details there in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, and the verses following. Also, you could just read the entire account of the Passover, what happened, and the celebration that the people were to have because of what happened in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, extending through to chapter 13, verse 16. But God instructed them in this celebration in many ways. That is exactly when and how often they would do it what it entailed, and even where they were to have the celebration, which at this point was Jerusalem. And you see that in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. They had to have this Passover meal now in Jerusalem. Now at Jesus' time, the Jewish people had already celebrated it, beloved. I'm saying now when we're going back in history, at Jesus' time, It had now been 1,500 years of celebration of this Passover. I I don't know if that strikes you at all, but just to give you an idea, our country is just over 230 years old. So we, we think, wow, we've been around a long time. Not really. Not really in the scope of things. This is this is big and significant. For fifteen hundred years, the Jewish people faithfully Every year, we're celebrating the Passover meal. It was ingrained into them. The children would celebrate it. The parents would celebrate it. They grew up with it. It was a big deal. That's what I want you to understand. It was a big deal. And it was something that they actually anticipated and looked forward to every year to celebrate. But why? Why was it a big deal? Well, in case you're not sure or you don't remember, or you've never heard this, or maybe you have, let me just give you a quick review. Approximately 1,900 years earlier to Jesus Christ, through a series of different events that are recorded for us in Genesis and Exodus, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, became the slaves of the Egyptians. After 430 long years of bondage, and you see that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 through 41, 430 years of this situation under Egypt, God powerfully rescued his people. He led them out of Egypt and eventually into their own land. Not any land, beloved, but a particular land that was located northeast of Egypt, a land that God had previously promised to give 
to his people. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 13, promises that were made initially to Abraham. But getting them out of Egypt was no easy task because the Pharaoh or the ruler of Egypt did not want to let these people go. Understand, this was slave labor for him. This is how he got things done. And so he certainly didn't want to see his, quote, employees all go away. Now, I'm not going to take the time to tell the whole story that is found in Exodus, and many of you may already be familiar with it, but it is important for our text today to know how the Passover celebration that's going on in Mark relates to Egypt and how it relates to the Jewish people. So what I've done is just pulled some passages from Exodus to bring us up to speed about the connection. Beginning in Exodus, and you can turn there if you'd like, it's the second book of your Bible, or you can look up on the screen, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. I'm sure that'll pop up anytime now. Okay, so the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After her word, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Just by way of review, he had already brought nine plagues upon Egypt. Some of these plagues were an invasion of frogs, an invasion of flies, an invasion of locusts, boils on the people. These are plagues that God brought against the nation because Pharaoh continued to be unwilling to listen to Moses, who God sent as his spokesperson, asking Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Pharaoh continued to resist. He would say, yeah, at some point he would say, okay, they can go. Never mind, I changed my mind. Okay, they can go. Never mind, I changed my mind. So God continues to send these plagues in the land. But the guy is stubborn. And he refuses to let them go. So now the Lord says, okay, I'm going to send one more. And when I send this one, he's going to let them go. He's going to let them go. So Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. He's explaining what's going to happen in this, in this plague. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, they had, they had Egyptian slaves also, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So even the animals would be impacted by this. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Wow, that's heavy. Very heavy. This whole idea of a dog not growling, basically there's going to be no commotion. These people, you won't even hear a dog growl where Israel resides, where the Jewish people, that is, reside. But in the Egyptian homes, there's going to be chaos. There's going to be mourning and sorrow. So let's read further here in Exodus. More details. Exodus 12, verse 3. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel, this is God giving instructions, that on the tenth day, very specific, of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Okay? Exodus 12, verse 6 through 8. And you shall keep it, that is the lamb, until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take, so the sun is setting, they're going to kill this lamb. Then they shall take some of the blood from the lamb that has been killed or sacrificed, and they will put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, which is the support beam at the top. So if you, if you have a door, it's both sides of the door and the top support beam of the door. They're to take some of the blood of this lamb and smear it in these places. Then they shall eat the flesh that night, that is of the lamb, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Further, let's go to verse 12 of Exodus 12 and verse, through verse 14. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, which were false gods, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this is where we get the, uh, it's gone now, but this is where we get the word, the idea of Passover. This is the Passover meal they're celebrating. The Lord passed over the homes of his people because they had the blood of a sacrificed lamb on their doorpost. Then he goes on in verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And he goes on to give specific directions about keeping that feast which they had been doing for 1,500 years when Jesus was walking on the earth at that time. One writer says this about this whole encounter. He says, It was the blood of the Lamb sprinkled on the doorpost of every Jewish home which stood between them and death on that night when God wrought his wrath on the firstborn of Egypt. Okay, pretty strange. If you've heard that for the first time just now, could be a little shocking. But if you're familiar with it, then even then, I think it the whole thing seems strange, doesn't it? No? It's like totally normal. I get that. Of course, that's what I would do. Go kill a lamb, throw some blood up on the door, come around, kill the firstborn of the enemy. I don't, I don't know, it's strange, okay? But let's keep moving. So here's what I want you to know about the Passover meal. There are four that they were celebrating after this, this celebration. There were four cups of red wine. Four cups of red wine. So that must have made it a good meal. That was a joke. I don't know where you guys are today. <laughs> I don't know if you're tired or the rain's got you down, but lighten up. 
They drank these cups of wine at different times during the evening. This meal, beloved, it's a ceremony, okay? It's a ceremony. It's not a casual get-together to have some food. I want you to understand that. This is regulated what they do, what they eat, when they do it, how they do it even. So anyway, the red wine that they drink throughout the night is understood to represent the blood of the lamb that was used to protect the Jews firstborn from death. So every time they partake of that red wine, and every time they look at the red wine in the cup, they are supposed to be triggered to remember the blood of the lamb that was spread on the doors that protected them from what happened to Egypt. To sum it up, this event was super significant in the lives of God's chosen people, and he never wanted them to forget it. So he instituted a special feast called the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's associated with it that took place once a year. To this day, beloved, many Jewish people today still celebrate God's deliverance in Egypt that occurred almost 3,500 years ago. Okay, 3,500 years ago now, still celebrating the Passover. But the question is, why did God choose to deliver his people in that way? Bless you. Why? Why did God choose to deliver the people in that way? I mean, isn't that, as we just said, isn't that strange? Was there not some other way to do it? Why that way, God? Why did you decide to go in and take all the firstborns? And why make them go through this whole procedure of killing a lamb and spreading the blood on the door and all of this? And then, God, you want them to memorialize it every year so that they never forget it. Well, keep that in the back of your mind. So it is this unique sacred supper that Jesus had with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. That's all I wanted you to see right now and begin to get you thinking about just the whole event and be asking yourself the question, why would he do it that way? Was there a purpose in this? Of course there is. So the second point is it was a secret supper. It was a secret supper. It was a sacred supper. It was a secret supper. Now, don't misunderstand. I am not saying that the Passover meal was normally held in secret. It was absolutely not. It was something that the people celebrated. They came. Everyone knew it was happening. But on that night specifically for Jesus and his disciples, it was necessarily done that way, meaning that it was a secret event. Let's look at the text. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Mark 14 beginning in the latter part of verse 12, it says here, His disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Preparing the Passover would have just been securing the lamb, having the lamb sacrificed, getting the elements of the meal. That's the idea of preparing the Passover, getting the meal ready for that evening. This account that we just read, even though it may not 
stand out to you right away. It's really clouded in secrecy. Jesus sends only two of his disciples. They're not in Jerusalem at this time. They're probably in or around Bethany, He sends, which is very close to Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem, where is, which is where the Passover meal must take place. Luke's account of the same story informs us that the two disciples were Peter and John. Now, you, you may not know this, but within the 12 disciples, Jesus had an inner circle, those that were there with Jesus that he would take with him along to very special events that took place in Jesus' life. We refer to them as the inner circle because, for whatever reason, they were taken out of the twelve, given special access to Jesus. Those three were Peter, James, and John. Two of them, two of this inner circle, are the ones that Jesus sends off into the city to accomplish this task. And when they get there, they are told to meet up with a guy carrying a jar of water. Really? Why a jar of water? Well, remember, the city is pretty busy. The city is pretty busy. So there's a lot going on. But the task of carrying a jar of water in their culture was normally done by the woman. It would be odd, very odd, to see a man carrying a jug of water, a jar of water. And so, this setup, this this looking for this particular man who's carrying a jar of water, would then make it easily identifiable to Peter and to John of who this man was that they were supposed to meet up with in the midst of all the other people that were there. One writer says, This unusual eye-catching sight suggests that it was a pre-arranged signal. That's exactly what I think it is, a pre-arranged signal. It's like a, think of a spy movie. You know, I'll meet you down here and I'll give you some, I'll be the guy with the hat with his leg crossed sitting sideways or some weird stuff like that. That's how you'll know it's me. I'll be the woman fanning myself. It's, it's that idea that there's going to be this, this encounter, but it's all clouded in secrecy. They are then told to follow him and enter the home he enters which was their clue it was the right place, right? Jesus doesn't tell them, this is the home you're going to go to to prepare the meal. He says, this is what I want you to do. You two, my trusted disciples, go in there. Find the guy carrying the jar of water. Follow him. When he enters that house, whatever house it is, that's the home. That's interesting. That's interesting. And what that does is it leaves the location of this home a complete mystery to the other disciples that are there. Even to the two disciples. It leaves it a mystery until they actually step through the door of that home when they have followed the man carrying the jar of water. Additionally, the two disciples that are sent are told to speak to the owner of the house on behalf of Jesus, and he tells them exactly what to say. And it is this. The teacher... The teacher says, where is my guest room? And Jesus adds to that, and then he will show you a room that is furnished and ready. All of this implies that the owner of the house knew Jesus and previous arrangements were made to use a room in his home for the Passover meal. So, what is this all about? Why the apparent secrecy regarding the location of the Passover meal? And it's simple, beloved. It's one word. Judas. Judas. 
We read last week that Judas, in chapter 11, we looked at this, or chapter 12, I'm sorry, in verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, one of Jesus' disciples had made a pact with the religious leaders in order to help them secretly, because they didn't want to upset the crowds and create a riot and have the Roman soldiers come in and crush them. They wanted to secretly arrest Jesus, ultimately so they might have him killed. That's their plot. That's their game plan. That's what they're set out to do. And Judas has conspired with them now to make that happen, to help them in their diabolical goal. One writer says this, our Lord, knew what Jesus, our Lord knew what Judas was plotting. He knew what he was planning. And he knew that it would have been a perfect place for him to be taken by the temple police, the religious police, under the leadership of the Sanhedrin, which is the religious court. If he was in a room at night, the streets were empty, the place were pitch dark, it wouldn't be in public view, and if they knew, he was going to be there. In other words... Judas is there, the disciples with the disciples, the two disciples come to him and say, where would you like us to go and prepare the Passover? Jesus speaks in secretive terms, sends his two trusted away to go find it. But if Judas had known at that moment where it would be, it would have been the perfect opportunity for him to go back and tell the religious leaders so that they might capture Jesus at that moment. And the writer goes on to say, in order to prevent Judas from having the opportunity to know where the place was and go tell the leaders of Israel, he made sure they never knew until they arrived there. And then Judas couldn't leave or he would have been exposed. Bottom line, beloved, the reason I draw this out and point it out to you that this was a secret supper is Jesus did not want Judas sabotaging sabotaging this boy sabotaging, I'm just going to leave that alone, this special dinner. He did not want him messing this thing up (laughs) by revealing its location to the religious authorities, which undoubtedly would have resulted in them crashing that party and arresting Jesus, which, by the way, as we move through the text, and you probably know this already, is exactly what happened later that night, long after dinner was done when we read that Judas led a hostile group to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was with the eleven. And by the way, John 18.12 tells us that Judas knew the place, that is, this location near the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So after dinner, when they went there, that is where Jesus is finally betrayed. But it is because Judas knew he would be there. He was looking for an opportunity to turn him over to the religious authorities that they might arrest him and then ultimately kill him. Luke adds this to this story. Luke 22, 15. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, I have earnestly, strongly desired to eat this Passover with you Before I suffer. Before I suffer. Jesus eagerly desired to have this Passover meal with them, and he did not want it interrupted. That's what's going on. It's that simple. He did not 
want to take any chances that this event would not take place. But why? Well, I think it is clear that one of the main reasons, hopefully you'll begin to see this as we move further through the text, was Jesus had some incredible truths that he wanted to communicate through this very meal. A meal, beloved, that had been established over 1,500 years ago by God. Truths that would speak not only to his pending death, but also to the incredible purpose for his death. You know, um, it's kind of like this. I don't know if you remember, back in 2003, George Bush visited Baghdad on Thanksgiving. And the entire thing shocked everyone because it was completely secret. Nobody knew. He wanted to show up there, have a Thanksgiving dinner with the troops, and express his thanks from the country for their, their sacrificial service on behalf of, of our citizens. In fact, the Secret Service agents guarding the Texas ranch were not told. They were not even told and his family found out only a few hours before he left. Why? Why all the secrecy? Well, certainly, George Bush wanted to get there, and he had some very important things he wanted to communicate to the men there, and he didn't want that to be blown apart or disrupted by the, by the report that he was going there, because if the enemy knew that the President of the United States was going to land in Baghdad to be with the troops, they certainly would have done everything in their power to disrupt that or even to kill him. It's the same thing. It's the same thing going on here. Jesus, this meal has to happen. It has to happen. He desires it to happen, and he's going to make sure it happens because it's a significant Supper, And so Jesus took all the necessary precautions to make sure that this thing took place. That's what I want you to see. Just the seriousness of what is about to happen at this meal. This is not something they're just getting together and have some food and then he'll die the next day. No, beloved. This is way bigger than that. Third, it is a sacred meal. It is a sacred supper. It was a secret supper. It is a somber supper, a somber supper. That's the third point. Somber meaning disturbing or sad or gloomy. That's what somber means. The Passover meal, by the way, was intended to be a joyous, a joyous occasion. But the celebratory nature of this event was interrupted when Jesus literally dropped a bomb on the meal. Well, not literally, but dropped a bomb on the meal. What bomb? What bomb? What explosive announcement? Did Jesus deliver during this celebratory time together? Look back at the text, Mark 14, beginning in verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, okay, so they're moving through the events of the night and the meal and all the ceremony that's involved in that. Jesus blurts out, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they begin to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Literally, there's one at this table eating with me, even, even dipping his bread in the same dish that I'm dipping my bread in, who will betray me. 
And then he goes on to say, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. It's going to happen. This, is, this has been declared by God, but woe to the men by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Interesting. You, you might notice that the disciples did not question his dire prediction here. You know, like, really, Jesus? Come on. Are you being a little paranoid? I mean, we're the twelve. None of us are going to betray you. Now, they, they didn't do that here. They actually begin to have a little self-doubt, self-examination. They begin to ask Jesus, every one of them individually, is it, is it I? Would I be the one? Now, Jesus' words here were, were more shocking than we may even understand because to betray a friend after eating a meal with him was, and still is, by the way, regarded as the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. I know we don't, we don't have that in our culture. I mean, we'll eat a meal with someone. It, it doesn't probably mean much. But in the culture of the Middle East, to break bread with someone means to have peace with them. In fact, you do not break bread or have a meal with your enemy. And so that's what elevated the seriousness of this thing. There is someone here in the disciples' circle, one who is even eating the meal with us. It is him who will actually do the most treacherous thing imaginable. He will betray a friend. He will betray me. Now this announcement understandably brought great grief to the disciples. But beyond that, I want you to consider that while they were enjoying this supper that celebrated and reminded them of God's great and dramatic deliverance from their ancestors' slavery in Egypt. Just remember that. That's what's going on in the background. That's the meal they're celebrating. At the same time that they're celebrating this great deliverance, Jesus was prophetically calling their attention to his betrayal. He's predicting it. It's going to take place. This betrayal, beloved, would usher in the event that he had been repeatedly telling them about, but they had yet to fully understand. What event? Well, you know, Mark 10, the last time we read in Mark, verse 33, Jesus was saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The Son of Man, beloved, was simply a title Jesus used for himself. And he says of himself that he was going to be betrayed or delivered over in order to be murdered. One writer says this, In a treacherous and humiliating manner, he, that is Jesus, the Lord of glory, is being handed over to his enemies. Okay? But why was this somber announcement about an unthinkable betrayal made at that moment during this dinner by Jesus in the midst of what is traditionally a joyful and happy meal? That's the question you should ask. Is there some connection with God's dramatic and powerful deliverance of his people 
many centuries in the past and Jesus' deadly betrayal that was to occur just hours later. And I would say, yes, there is a connection. They're not going to understand it now, but they will understand it later. And that brings us to the next point, a symbolic supper, a symbolic supper. We have a sacred supper, a secret supper, a somber supper, and fourth, a symbolic supper. Look back at the text, Mark 14. And as they were eating, he took bread. So he's just announced his betrayal. He now takes bread. After blessing it, giving thanks for it, he broke it, and he gave it to them in order to distribute it. And he said, take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about here? Now, if you take Jesus' words here literally about the bread and the wine being his actual body and blood, that somehow, while he's standing there in his full body, complete, no blood is gushing out of him, somehow the bread and the wine is, is actually his flesh and blood now, if you take that literally, then what you have is Jesus suggesting some sort of cannibalism. That's weird. That is very weird, very strange, because he would be offering his actual flesh and blood to be consumed by his followers. But that is not the meaning, beloved, that Jesus intended, nor is there any reason to believe that the disciples, who were familiar with figurative language, understood it in that way. They wouldn't have understood it like that. The disciples did not Let me repeat. The disciples did not literally eat Jesus' body or drink his blood. In fact, the idea of drinking blood would have been especially offensive or repulsive to a Jew since God had given several commands forbidding that very act. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. One thing the Jews knew, you do not consume blood. Why would a Jew of all Jews now be telling them to do that? Jews, Jesus' words here, beloved, are symbolic. They are symbolic. That is, they are meant to represent something. So that the bread and the wine of this meal, according to Jesus, became symbols or representations of something else. But they did not, that is these elements, the bread and the wine, did not actually or physically become that something else. They did not actually become his body and his blood. Jesus has used figurative language before. Jesus says in John 10:7, I am the door, a door that the sheep shall enter through. When he said, I am the door, did Jesus literally become a door? In John 15:1, Jesus says, I am the vine speaking to the fact that if you're not attached to me, you have no life. Did Jesus literally become a tree or a vine? No, he's speaking symbolically, figuratively. The unleavened bread Jesus took off the table that night was regularly served at this meal, and it was a reminder of the same type of bread they had to eat at the first Passover. 
They had to eat unleavened bread because they couldn't put leaven in it because they didn't have the time for the leaven to do its process because God was going to come, perform his work in Egypt, and then the people would be escorted out in a hurry. In fact, the first meal they were instructed to be ready to be dressed and to be standing while they ate the meal because they were about to be sent out of Egypt. And so they didn't have time to put in leaven into the bread and let it rise, so they ate unleavened bread. And so here, they would continue as a reminder of what happened that night and and the, the quickness with which they had to leave before God, you know, at this meal that they had. They had that food, but now Jesus takes it and he wants them not to remember necessarily just God's rescue or deliverance from Egypt that night, but he wanted them to remember and celebrate an even more significant rescue, a more significant deliverance when they partook of that unleavened bread. And Jesus knew, they didn't really understand it still, but Jesus knew that he would soon give his very body, his physical body, on the cross to rescue people from their slavery and bondage to sin. Not just Egypt. That's what's going on here. He knows what's coming. He wants to memorialize it. He wants them to understand it. So he says, here's some bread. This symbolically now represents my body. Luke says it this way in Luke 22:19, And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them. Can we pop that up here on the screen? He gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This bread represents the body that I'm going to give. Little did they know, in a few short hours, that's exactly what was going to take place. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? Are they supposed to partake of the meal in remembrance of Jesus in a very general way, like, You know, every time I eat the unleavened bread, I just remember Jesus. He was such a good guy, such a funny guy. I liked his hair. That's not what's going on here. In remembrance of me, they didn't get it, but they would get it. In remembrance of him giving his body for them. In remembrance of the cross. In remembrance of the great sacrifice that was only hours away. That's what's going on. That's what they would remember. Every time now they took this meal. No longer just deliverance out from bondage under Egypt, but the greatest deliverance a human being could possibly have. Deliverance from sin. Additionally, beloved, the wine in the cup was consumed at the Passover meal. And as I said before, it was meant to remind the participants of the blood of the lamb that was put on the doors of the Jewish homes. Remember, We talked about this. It was that blood that prevented God's wrath from coming upon them as it did the Egyptians. But now, now Jesus wants them to see it a little differently. He wants them them to be reminded of symbolically that it is His blood Not the lamb's blood back in Egypt 1,500 years ago, but it will be his blood that will be given at the cross in order to do the very same thing, in a sense, that is save people from God's wrath. Save them from God's wrath. Remember I asked you, why? 
Why God? 1,500 years ago, you could have rescued your people from Egypt in a million different ways. Why this way? Why the Passover lamb? Why the blood on the doorpost? Why make them memorialize it year after year? Why? This is why. Everything was moving to this Passover meal. This is why the meal was clouded in secrecy. It had to happen. The truce that would come out in this meal had to be understood and known. It is these very truths that we as the church continue to celebrate month after month and year after year when we take communion or the Lord's Supper. It was huge. It was a big deal. By the way, Matthew 26:28 says, For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what's added to this. This is why it's being poured out for you. You want to know why? It is for the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, biblically, the blood, that reference, it's simply another way of referring to life, the life of someone. It is not simply talking about the fluid It's not as if Jesus' blood is magic blood. It is because in his blood is life. You see that in Leviticus 17.11 and Genesis 9.4. There is life in the blood. Since it is blood that carries life-sustaining elements to all parts of the body, it represents the essence of life, as one writer puts it. So Jesus' blood, listen to me. Let's hear this. Jesus' blood or life. His very life would be offered up on behalf of sinners in their place as a substitute, as an acceptable payment for their sin so that the penalty for their sins might be dealt with once and for all as God would pour out His wrath on Jesus Christ punishing our sin. Making forgiveness of our sins a permanent reality and thereby protecting those who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior from ever personally experiencing the wrath of God. That's what took place. That's what it means that this blood is going to be offered up on your behalf that you might have forgiveness of sins. In the same way that the blood was put on the post and that protected the people from God's wrath as this lamb was sacrificed, not even maybe understanding all of that, it would be Jesus who has been referred to as the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed in His blood. His life would be offered up to protect God's people, to prevent them from His wrath by paying the price for their sin. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5, 8 through 9. It says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified, that is, made right with God, how? By my good deeds? By His blood? By His life given for me? By his sacrifice, much more now shall we be saved by him because of this. 
from the wrath of God. Because, beloved, my sins have been forgiven. Jump to this, and we'll close up here pretty quick here. Uh, The second uh, quote. There's a second quote here I want you to see. Our Lord desired that by means of the supper here instituted, the church should remember his sacrifice and love him, should reflect on that sacrifice and embrace him by faith, and should look forward in living hope to his glorious return. And that brings me to the last point. I need to wrap up. It is a subsequent supper, a subsequent supper. So we have a sacred supper, a secret supper, a somber supper, a symbolic supper, and finally a subsequent supper. Subsequent, if I can say it, simply means to follow or come later. Okay, so I, I'm not suggesting that this meal, uh, that Passover meal was a subsequent meal. What I'm saying is that within this meal, the idea of a subsequent meal or a meal to follow is communicated. The annual Passover meal Jesus shared with his disciples would not then be the last one he would have with them, even though he would be crucified early at 9 a.m. on the following day. It would not be the last meal, beloved. And we see that in Mark 14:25 in the text there, if you want to look at it. He says, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine is just a reference to the cup or the wine that he just referred to that he was going to offer up on their behalf. He says, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Matthew twenty six twenty nine puts it this way. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Wow. Regarding Jesus' words here, one writer says, there is here a clear anticipation of this, what we refer to as this messianic banquet, this great feast of the Messiah in his kingdom, when the Passover fellowship with his followers will be renewed in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus will drink the wine new, where in this context, newness is the mark of a redeemed world, a transformed world, and it will be the time of ultimate redemption that is in his kingdom. Let me add this. Paul, or uh, I'm sorry, Paul, the prophet Ezekiel, and I'm quoting from another writer here, the prophet Ezekiel, he gives a picture in that book, in the Old Testament, of what millennial worship will look like. That is, the worship that takes place of God and Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And we find that in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. This is the kingdom to come, beloved. On the earth. A kingdom that is not here yet. The worship of Christ in the kingdom to come. Ezekiel 40 to 48. Within that section in chapter 45 verses 21 through 25, you will find, if you go there, being described the celebration of, of all things, The Passover. There will be a temple, according to Ezekiel, that is built in the millennium. And there will be a Passover that is held at that time in the millennial kingdom. But not as a memorial to the Exodus. But as a memorial 
to the cross. The Passover will be celebrated there. Christ will officiate at that celebration as he did with his disciples on that Thursday night. And the writer goes on to say, this is good news for them because he's talking about his death. And they need to know that not only will he die, but he will rise and he will establish his kingdom. And they will be there. And he will be with them. And there they will celebrate the Passover again. Beloved, so here's how I just want to close this because I'm way over. We get together once a month for the purpose of celebrating the communion. That's how we do it. The Lord, the command is that we should do it on a regular basis. Some people do it weekly. Once some, we do it once a month. But it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Because it's memorializing that meal on that night, what has now been defined by us as Christians as the Lord's Supper. It, it, it transformed, in a sense, from just the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper because he, he took control of this meal, he hosted this meal, and he infused into the elements new meaning, new significance, that the bread and the wine now would be his very body and his very blood or life being offered up on behalf of sinners that they might be reconciled with God and that they would never have to experience personally the wrath of God that they deserve, that we deserve as sinners. And now, think about this. We go way into the future, into the kingdom that we long and look for. And what are we still doing? We're still doing the memorial meal. We're still having a Passover to look back now, not to Egypt and the great deliverance that God accomplished for His people there, but to look back to the cross and to see in the cross the great deliverance that God accomplished through Jesus Christ in delivering people from the bondage of sin, the power of sin, and the penalty of sin in their lives. And when we're in the kingdom, beloved, will even be delivered from the presence of sin. That's incredible stuff. And when you go back and you say, God, why would you do such things in Exodus and why did you set it up? Everything, beloved, is pointing to the cross. Everything before the cross is leading up to the cross and everything after the cross will continue for all eternity to point back there. Because it was at that moment that the greatest event in all of history, in all time, indeed in all eternity, took place that Jesus offered himself up willingly to redeem and save sinners from the wrath of his Father. That's pretty amazing stuff. So when we have communion uh, next month, trust that these thoughts, these truths would, would capture your heart and your mind. That it would become something very significant to you, not just a, a ritual that we go through. Let's pray. Father God, we indeed thank you for the truths of this supper, this significant supper, Father. I hope, I hope, Father, we would see it that way. We would embrace it as something that is meaningful, noteworthy, a really big deal. Jesus went out of his way to make sure this event happened. Indeed, Father, you prepared for the event 1,500 years in advance. 
with an incredible sequence of events in Egypt and rescuing your people and all of that in preparation for what Jesus would say on the eve of his crucifixion, only hours before he would give his body and his blood, his very life, to save his people. Wow. Father, may we, may we get a hold of that. May we continue to focus in on the cross. May we never forget it. May we never run away from it. May we never set it aside. May we never think that's just for getting saved. No. We remain there. We camp there. We live under it and in it. Because through it, we have hope. We have certain salvation. We have forgiveness of sins. No longer under condemnation. No longer under your wrath because of Jesus Christ. Because we have placed our faith in Him as our substitute. And now we have been forgiven. We are cleansed. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.